A few years after getting his degree in mechanical and aerospace engineering from Princeton University and fresh out of his MBA at Harvard Business School, Antoine Colasso wanted to go into the VC world as an investor, but he'd always heard it's better to start with operational experience first. So he joined Yahoo. Then in 2003, he took a risk and accepted a position at a small startup called Google. Antoine was there for nine years, founding Google's operation in India and launching offices all over Latin America. Although it may seem glitzy and glamorous to build startups within what would become one of the largest tech companies in the world, it came with the same challenges any early stage founder would face some of which weren't the least bit glamorous. It was his impressive curriculum, but also his great feeling for business and love for Latin America that led Antoine into becoming a partner at Valor Capital Group. In this episode, he shares how different LATAM cultures affect his investment approach, how he sees potential paths for founders looking to expand their business, a bit of Valor's investment criteria, and how intuition and luck can play a big part in investing in winning companies. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Welcome. It's great to have you on, and it's a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's funny to think back. We were just talking, and last time we saw each other, right, was ironically on a place where not many people are these days. On an airplane, we, we had our, our fun kind of pre-waiting, and I think I had a flight change. I'm trying to remember, were we flying to Sao Paulo? And we, do you remember where we ran into each other? Yeah, we were flying to Sao Paulo. We ran into each other, I think, on the flight from San Francisco to Houston. We saw each other. Then we talked. We were catching up in the lounge in Houston when I found out that our flight to Sao Paulo was canceled. That's right. And then we had to do a frantic call the airline. How do we get... They'd rescheduled us for the next day, I think it was. The flight wasn't supposed to leave for another like 12 hours. There was some equipment issue. And then we were both frantically trying to figure out how to get to Sao Paulo, because I think you had a board meeting. I did. I had a full day of meetings or something like that. So then I think um, we managed to get two of the last seats on the flight to Rio. And then we got a domestic flight from Galeão into Sao Paulo. So it was a bit of a crazy time, but uh, we got definitely got a lot of time to catch up. <laughs> it was a good time to catch up. And I will comment the fact that uh, I, I couldn't get an upgrade because of you. And I know that historically you weren't flying business class every time, but at the volume of flights that you've been having down to Brazil... Uh, that does make it quite a lot easier. But uh, remember, it was sold out. So basically, the reason why I had to fly uh, back in coach was because of you. So uh, well, you know, I wouldn't put it as because of me. I would say, you know, I actually, I actually alerted you of the fact that our flight was canceled first. So I, I you're right. You're, I helped you get to Brazil on time. That's you really did. You really did. <laughs> I, I have no qualms. Uh, in fact, I, I got some good inside information from you to help me accommodate my schedule. And I guess the most important thing is that we both made it on time for our board meetings. And that's, at the end of the day, that was kind of the objective. So for that, I'm grateful. I wanted to dive in a little bit more. We had a great chat. I remember asking you a lot of questions. We, Given that we had all this time to hang out in the airport, some interesting things that I just want to kind of revisit with you and kind of share with our audience. And when I recall, Indian father, French mother, went to the University of the United States. What are you doing in Brazil, man? <laughs> I have no idea. No, you know, it's, um, it's funny. Yeah, my... Uh, so yes, my father's from India, but he's actually from a part of India that used to be a Portuguese colony, uh, so Goa. So he, one of his first languages was Portuguese, actually, and he actually did his uh, PhD dissertation. He was at Berkeley, but he did it on Brazil in the 60s. So basically looking at the economic situation in Brazil in the 60s. So growing up, he actually went down and did first-person research in Brazil, 
growing up, all I heard about was how amazing Rio was in the 60s, Bossa Nova, all that's, you know, the, the kind of the heyday period. So I'd always heard about this. And then I had to make friends with all the Brazilians in uh, business school. And so my first trip to Brazil was during business school, much more of a social side. And then one of my jobs after business school was working at Google for nine years. And in that time, I opened up another a number of operations. So I opened up uh, our office in India and in Hyderabad. Uh, and then Mexico City, Sao Paulo, and Buenos Aires. And so I spent some time in Brazil through that as well. And then got the opportunity to do venture in Brazil. And uh, through contacts that I had, and when Valor wanted to start a venture business, they reached out to me. So it was a lot of happenstance. I got to tell you, the country is I've always found to be amazing from the first time I went there. Um, and I'm sure you have a similar feeling from when you went down there the first time. It's just there's a warmth in the people that's amazing. There's an entrepreneurial spirit that hasn't been, that's nascent in technology, but has been there for many, many years. And it's a massive market in so many different ways. So there's just a lot of fascinating things about the market, which I love. Um, you know, I love India for a number of reasons. I love my French side of me for a number of reasons. Um, but Brazil, not having any background in Brazil, but but it's kind of adopted in, for me in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone that has that experience that comes from the outside is kind of enchanted a little bit. My first time I went to Brazil, I was in 2001, and I remember visiting Rio and landing into the, you know, to the city and walking on Ipanema, and I'm making a mental note. Okay, someday I'm going to return to this place. I don't know why. I don't know how. I don't know what it's going to be like. And that was in 2001. And then fast forward, I, you know, I moved there full-time in 2011, so a decade later. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that it's, it, there is something enchanting about the region. I'd love to hear more about, you worked at Yahoo before, you left Yahoo, you know, which was a huge company at the time, and then you, you joined that, this little startup that we call Google. When you reflect on your experience as an operator, what did you learn? What did that experience teach you that might help you become a better investor? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I, when I was coming out of business school, I thought I wanted to do VC at the time and you know, came out to Silicon Valley. That was 2000, before everything crashed. So I was you know, looking for jobs in 98, my summer of 99, and then early, late 99, early 2000. And everything out here was absolutely booming, right? It was, it was insane out here in, in, in Silicon Valley at the time. And I thought I wanted to do VC. And every time I went to some of the big players here, they kept on saying, look, you need operating experience. Be in the trenches. You need to understand how businesses work before. Because before business school, I'd done consulting, I'd done project finance, et cetera. So I hadn't really had true, true operating roles. And at the time, you know, I said, oh, I don't know. that I don't know if that's really true. I, I guess it makes sense. But, you know, I, I feel like I can still do it. But anyways, I ended up going into banking and then ended up going to Yahoo. I was a Goldman for, for a little while and doing tech banking. And at the end of 2000 was brutal with all, every, all the tech, uh, you know, all the internet crashing. And then I was at Yahoo doing business development for the uh, Yahoo Finance property which was interesting, but at a certain point, it got a little repetitive as far as doing the same sort of deals and there wasn't kind of a lot of innovation and so on. And then I had a friend of mine from business school who said, look, you should talk to this company that I'm working for, Google. This woman, Cheryl Sandberg, is looking for somebody to run kind of or create an analytics business for her. It was a time when Google was still relatively small. This was in 2003. The team, you know, uh, supporting AdWords was fewer than 100 people, basically. There were fewer than 1,000 people at the company. When I went into the interview, I talked to Cheryl about it. Uh, I said, look, I'm happy to, to run this analytics organization, but I also want to make sure that uh, I get operating experience too, because that was something that kind of kept in the back of my mind that I want. And she said, we can do that. And she said, look, the one thing to think about is, and this is not exactly your question, but just in your career, she said, look, what Eric Schmidt told her when she was coming is you want to join a rocket ship because no matter what, you'll get opportunities. 
And, uh, and so she told me that, and I said, you know, that resonated with me a lot. And I've actually used that for a number of, when I interview candidates for our, some of our portfolio companies, I tell them that as well, because basically what happens is you get the opportunity to do a number of different things. You start with one job. I started running that. I ran the blogger team, which is, was actually some of the founders of Twitter were, were on my team at, at blogger too. Six months into that or less than that, I'm presenting to the founders and, uh, and to Eric to say, we should open up an operation in, in India. Uh, Eric turns to me and says, does that mean you're going to do it? And I said, and then, you know, you don't say no to the CEO when you're at the company for less than six months. And so I <laughs> said, yeah, and you moved to India. So, but that's the kind of thing for me. It was just like the opportunity to go to a company, which is growing so rapidly, had so much promise that uh, it gave you opportunities to do all sorts of things. And so my experience in India was like running a startup in some ways in that we had funding from the parent company and we had a brand name, although we didn't have an entity at the time. But we had to do everything. So I was there to start up an AdWords business unit. But part of my day was spent in a hard hat in the new space saying, we need a projector pointing this way. And this is the way the room should be and stuff like that in shells of buildings that we were going we to occupy because facilities team didn't get on a plane to come out to India. And with a 12 and a half or 13 and a half hour time difference, uh, real-time communication is sometimes difficult. So I got a, uh, a very quick tutorial on how to try to start up a business in some ways, as a lot of our entrepreneurs do. But I think that helps you, right? Like you have to just be scrappy and doing things. Like at that time, Larry and Sergey were still looking at every candidate to hire to Google and they had to approve every candidate. And we had to teach them because at that time, academic qualifications were very important, right? So you had to go in the US, you had to be at one of a handful of schools that you have to graduate from a certain list of schools, same thing in Europe and so on. But in India, they didn't know what those schools were. So we had to kind of educate internally, what are the best schools in India? For what? What do the grades mean, et cetera, and so on. And we didn't, we didn't know salaries there. So what we had to do was start trying to get set, create salary ladders. And so we had to get information from every candidate. What were they, what were they making at what company, what level, et cetera. And so we had to create salary ladders and salary job, you know, job descriptions that matched what was happening in the market and so on. So literally, you know, you're, these are just examples, but that, that kind of experience, I think, helped me a lot in understanding kind of what our entrepreneurs are going through in some ways too. Absolutely. And it's wild to think of that, like Google or like pretty early days, like picking up, dropping into a place like India, what are some of the the challenges that you maybe that, you know, people would be surprised at the early days of like, not going to dive into this right now, but for the listeners, I actually completely failed by trying to open an office in India for Viveral, which is like a whole nother, this could be a separate podcast and I'll share my <laughs> F-ups at some point, personal F-ups. You know, maybe we should start a podcast where it's like making that normal to share your total, your total big screw-ups. Oh, man, um, <laughs> but I'd love to hear, like, what, what was that like? I mean, I, I know how hard it was for us, and I know that we made a lot of mistakes. Obviously, you had a company like Google behind you, and even if it was early days of Google, this is pre-IPO, I guess. But still, what, what were the challenges? Yeah, we, we did have a big company, but, you know, we didn't have an entity. So what was funny was, so there were a lot of mistakes. I mean, there were a lot of things that happened. Like, I mean, I have pictures of basically, you know, our servers coming on a rickshaw with piled up with 100 computers on there. So, I mean, we, we, we had everything going on. You know, we didn't have air conditioning after a certain time and it was the middle of the summer in India and we're trying, we're literally stripping at our desk trying to get work done. But we had, there were a lot of challenges. So we, we didn't have our entity set up, which we were trying to do in parallel. So we were hiring people through a third party headhunting firm, basically. And we would have candidates come into our office with their families to say, are you really Google? And how do we know you're really Google? And in India, it's, it's, it's very common for people, especially young people just graduating from college, freshers, 
to say, to have their families be part of the decision process with them, right? So we would regularly have young people with their, with their parents coming into the office to almost question us and interview us. It was trying to explain to them that we really were Google. We, we just didn't have our entity set up yet, but we had, you know, we were going to be big companies. So we had to learn a lot about how to do that. I mean, frankly, you know, one of the things that we were doing was also we were, um, we were approving ads and some of the approvals of ads is for, for porn ads, right? And you have to limit, you have to list them as non-family safe, right? But right this time, there had just been something happening with eBay where the head of eBay for India was put in jail because there was a pornographic video which was sold on eBay and the platform was held liable for that, right? And so we actually had, we had to go and get a former judge to opine that what we were doing was still legal in Brazil to have people looking at those ads, like to even watch those ads was going to be legal because there's, there's very strict pornographic laws in India. Yeah. Um, but we had to go through that entire system, figure that out, why, how to do it and so on. But even like little things, like when we, even after we incorporated, we had, you know, we'd set up our entity and this was a time when there were still faxes coming in and there was literally a piece of paper a fa- on a fax machine that nobody had looked at that was saying we were going to get, we we're going to lose our incorporation in India if we didn't pay this tax bill. And nobody had seen it, hadn't been emailed to us. So we had to kind of quickly get our finance team on it. But again, we didn't have, fin- we didn't, for a long time, we didn't have local finance. We didn't have local HR. We didn't have local facilities. We were doing it all ourselves. And again, with that kind of time difference, you're trying to get people in headquarters to realize that you are important and need help when you're such a small you know, business. And now I think it's the second largest office for Google. Uh, so Mountain View is first. And I think, I think Heiser Best is number two. But at the time we were, you know, a few people coming from the U S trying to figure this out. And um, yeah, it was, it was an interesting time. It was a seven day a week sort of deal. I bet. And you've got some experience. I mean, global experience. When you look at Brazil and you look at kind of the cultural differences, I'm a foreigner, I guess, you know, I'm, I'm not Brazilian. I landed into Brazil. I spent time in Mexico, Colombia. What do you think that the challenges are as a foreigner coming into Brazil? There's a lot of interest in entrepreneurship people starting companies. I've talked to a handful of entrepreneurs in the US that are, you know, I've thought about going down to Brazil. What are the things that kind of surprised you as you kind of did more business in Brazil and got kind of in the, in the trenches there? I don't know if it surprised me, but I think there's some things that are very important to understand. One is obviously, and, and the first thing that scares people from outside of Brazil is just regulatory sort of environment, right? Like uh, tax laws, employment laws, et cetera, um, which I think scares a lot of people. I think they are very complicated. You need to understand them. They're not insurmountable, as we've all seen, because we've you know, been able to start companies there. But I think it's really getting a good understanding of that is one. It's interesting. There's there's such a warmth of the people that we discussed earlier, which is is incredibly welcoming, which is great. There is that so-called Brazilian no, which is people will say yes and yes and yes sometimes so that they don't say no to you. And you have to understand when, when people are saying yes, when they really mean yes, and when they really don't mean yes. And I think part of that is just you know, like India, I think personal relationships matter immensely. I think in the U.S., you're more used to more being transactional. So things can be very transactional. You don't have to have that personal relationship. I think in Brazil, there's much more of a personal connection that has to be there for some of those things. But I don't know, what do you, what, what, were, what were some of your takeaways when you were looking at it? Yeah, I would say that the relationship piece, I mean, I spent time in Mexico and in Colombia, which I think in some degree have similar cultural kind of family is really important and you know these these other kind of elements and i think that b- building those those relationships were you know were really important yeah the communication is a bit different right like the just the directness of communication coming from the us uh where i would say to a lesser degree in brazil but in other places like in colombia when you kind of ask a question there's this concept of an 
kind of inverted triangle for communication. In the US, you know, you ask a question, what's your favorite color? My favorite color is red because I like the 49ers. And then you give a whole explanation of what the rationale is. Whereas in other cultures, and I'd say Latin America in general, but in maybe in certain pockets even more so, where you ask a question, what's your favorite color? My favorite color when I was a kid was green because there was this girl with green eyes. And then there's this like longer explanation. And then, and if you think about it, it's actually quite rational because you're, you're giving your rationale for your decision and you're justifying and explaining. But as an American, it, can, it comes across as being uh, indirect and you know, less direct, which gives a question mark. It's like, what is this person hiding? Right. And so that was something that I had to learn as an entrepreneur is that like, there's just a different style of communication. I think it's lesser to agree in Sao Paulo than it is maybe in different part of Latin America. But uh, nevertheless, it's, I think it's something that exists. No, I think that's right. And I think your point about family is really important. I mean, I think there's much more an openness to inviting you to someone's house early on in meeting them than there is in the U.S., right? In the U.S., you're much more guarded. You, you know somebody for five years, you may never have met their family. In Brazil, you may know somebody for one week and they're inviting you for a barbecue, right? I mean, it's it, it's a completely different kind of yeah. perspective there. Yeah, I've leaned m- much more on the, the LATAM culture side, uh, having lived there for so long. I'm very, an open entrepreneur calls me and says, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco. I'm like, come over. We'll have, we'll have lunch at my house and let's, let's chat. And I think that that, uh, I like that also from a personal standpoint. How has that affected your investment kind of behavior in terms of how does the cultural, it's a global fund, it's an international fund. You're based out of New York, right? You're in, on the West Coast, but Scott's yep. in New York. And so you've, you know, and then you've got the team in Sao Paulo. So uh, how has that, those cultural elements affected kind of your, your investment approach? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think we've all, all of us have worked in or, you know, so a lot of our team is Brazilian. We've worked in Brazil. All of us have worked in Brazil for quite a while now. So I don't, I think we're all very used to kind of the cultural aspects of it in a number of ways. Before COVID, obviously, we were traveling there quite often. So we'd be there a lot. Now, this has changed everything in some ways. I don't think it's affected us dramatically. I mean, we are a Brazil-focused fund and that 75% of our investments are Brazilian companies, right? So we still have a lot of, ne- the nexus of our fund is really Brazilian and focused on that. Um, so I think that we have either been used to or gotten used to a lot of those cultural pieces in a lot of ways. We're not Brazilian, but we like to think of ourselves as adopted by the Brazilians in a lot of ways in some way. And so I think that that's, um, we've gotten very used to the cultural aspects in a lot of ways. Where is the other 25% deployed? Anywhere in the world. Have you made any investments outside of Brazil and Latin America? We have made in Argentina. We've made a couple. We've looked at things in Colombia and Mexico. We have not actually invested yet, but we are interested in investing. Mexico, I think, is a few years behind Brazil in a lot of uh, kind of the evolution of some of their uh, tech market. Colombia, I think, is fascinating, frankly. I mean, I, I, I was there. That was my last trip, actually, pre-COVID. Uh, it was either right before our trip that, that I met you on or right after. Um, but I went to Colombia uh, actually for the first time. And I, I was amazed about, about the country. I think uh, what they've gone through over the last century with wars, drug drug cartels, et cetera. But now they seem to be turning around. And from an infrastructure perspective, they've really put a lot of great things in place. And I think that they have an opportunity to really shine. Chile has some interesting companies coming out of there. It's a much smaller market. But obviously, you've seen some big companies coming out of there, Notco and so on. So I think we will continue to do more throughout Latin America as time goes on. I totally agree. And some of these, like, call them smaller domestic markets in comparison to Mexico or to Brazil, the mentality is global from day one or regional, at least Pan Am. And so 
if you think about what Israel has been, they build from day one for the world. You, you saw that in the early days in Argentina um, with, you know, Globant and Mercado Libre. And, yeah, yeah. and then, you know, you look at Rappi as a regional kind of player. Um, so it's definitely something that, uh, you know, I think we're making the region a lot more interesting. And, and you know, I, I've concentrated in Brazil. That's where I built my business. But, you know, as I think of the next chapter, I think there's incredible entrepreneurs to come out of all of these, you know, these countries. Yeah, my, my hope is that also, I mean, Argentina, I feel like the uh, companies in Argentina always think about Brazil. Maybe it's because of the proximity and size and so on. I don't think other, necessarily all the other Latin American countries, when companies come out of there, they automatically think about Brazil. They do Spanish-speaking LATAM or they go to the U.S. or something like that. I, I hope more of them think about Brazil as an opportunity. I, I think that this uh, perceived barrier between Spanish-speaking LATAM and Brazil is actually less than uh, is less in reality than people think it is. And, um, and so it's a large market that, that needs great, you know, constantly great ideas. So I think that uh, hopefully there'll be more companies that look at Brazil as an, as an expansion point. Let's explore that a little bit. You do hear the comment, right? Like Brazil is not for beginners. And then you've got, I think you see not a lot of Brazilian companies expanding outside of, of Brazil because of the domestic market size. Um, however, I think that that is, is changing a bit. It's, it's, I think it's changing somewhat. Yeah. Yeah. And on the contrary, entering Brazil from Latin America, you think that the barrier is lower than maybe previously thought, or what the like the common wisdom of that opportunity? Well, I think there's a perception that that Brazil is really difficult. There are so many things. Again, I think the I think the people are scared off by regulatory questions. They're like, oh my gosh, that labor market's impossible. The tax regime is impossible, which in some cases it is, but um, but it's not uh, insurmountable, right? I think it's something that that can that a lot of companies can be successful. And I think if you've got a good model that you should that, that can be successful in Brazil, that you, you should bring it there. I mean, I think that that you shouldn't automatically assume that it's not going to be possible. And, and, and you know, again, if you're in Argentina and, and you want to build a company throughout the rest of Latin America, it's the same size as the market of Brazil. So why not enter one country versus getting into, you know, however many other countries. So I do think that there are opportunities there. Now, you know, in, as you said, there are, I think there's more and more companies out in Brazil expanding outside of Brazil. Um, and I think that there's also, you're seeing a number of them that are going throughout Latin America, but like we've got one company, Jim Pass, that went to, to Latin America, went to Europe and is now in the US, right? And so they've expanded through uh, now three continents. And I think, again, you don't have, I think there's this enamorment with Brazilians going straight to the US, right? And, instead of other markets. And I'm not sure that that's always the right answer, frankly, because I think sometimes their products may be better suited for other markets in Latin America or either other emerging markets. I could see at some point more commonality between Southeast Asian markets and uh, Latin American markets than the US and Latin America at times. So depending on the model and so on. I think there will be some more of that kind of expansion that goes to what was not considered typical in the past. Like we've got a company that went, that's actually a tech team in the US, but their first market was Nigeria. And then they came to Brazil because there's so much, and then in the fintech space, there's so much commonality in kind of the way that those two markets, the size of the markets are very similar, the ways that the markets operate in where they're trying to, uh, you know, the segment of the market that they're going after is similar. So, and that made a lot of sense for them. And so we're helping them enter the Brazilian market. I think you'll see more kind of emerging, emerging market expansion over time. Yeah, I hope, I hope we see more cross-border activity. And I'm an example of someone that was in, I was in Colombia building the business there. And then I kind of realized the size of the market Brazil. I mean, I think I did the analysis, like, and it was there was more potential customers for my business in the state of Rio than Colombia, and so you know did the math and decided to go there. And I think the bottom line is, if you're dropping into a market like Brazil, 
of course, it's always hard to expand anywhere, right? Out of, out of your domestic market, no matter what. But I think that it can be mitigated by one, having good partners. So if you've got investors with like strong networks, that's something that we didn't have that when we launched because we didn't have a network and we didn't have any investors. But when, once we did that, it was helpful. On top of that, just having like person on the ground that you end up like your first key hire or launch partner or founder that's connected to the region and country, I think, I think is a, give you a big shortcut, at least in my case, having someone like Diego, my co-founder was, he was, was tremendous. Yeah. I think one of the things that we've seen that's been successful, we did it at Google and then, you know, seeing for some of our portfolio companies is also, if you have a strong team in your domestic market, like say Brazil, and you're trying to expand, take one of your people from your team to be the first person on the ground there, really start and, and make sure your hires have the culture that you want to build locally. So whatever your culture is at home, try to replicate that as much with whatever modifications you need to make for local local norms, but keep that culture as much as you can by having those almost like ambassadors who set it up and then bring in the right person to lead that operation. And then that the original person can move on to something else. But I think that's something that we've found to be very valuable as you're opening up and expanding to other markets because you never want your other offices to feel like stepchildren that don't have the same benefits. So for example, when we were opening up India, one of the big things for us at Google was to make sure that everybody felt like they were part of Google. So those first employees got pre-IPO options, right? Which made immense difference to them. And and maybe it wasn't the same size or whatever, but it made life-altering changes for their lives after the IPO and so on. But it also made them feel like they were like any other employee. They weren't a second-class employee, but they were like every other employee at Google throughout the world. They got options, they got pay packages similar. And that I think is really important in keeping the culture, whether it's you know having a TGIF, on Fridays, you know, globally or what have you, that was really important to keeping the culture the same in all of our op- in all of our offices. I think we've seen that with some of our portfolio companies as they expand. Also, I like the idea of sending existing team members to open a new market along with like local. I think that's a great way to kind of, you know, insert the DNA and get get exactly. it right from the very beginning. I think that if we had ever you know expanded during my time, I think that that would have been would have made sense to you know to drop in and and kind of get that right from day one because. There's something about the essence of what you're building, and it's hard to replicate unless someone is kind of living in that in that experience. Even though we're going to see more companies that are operating remote from day one, where now it is, yeah. <laughs> like I, I've been thinking about that, and and how do you build a culture kind of like in this remote fashion? Which we can save that for another episode. But right. I'd love to hear a little bit more about your investment criteria. Um, actually, let me ask you something. I remember hearing somewhere, you may have said this, and if I misquote, you tell me, referring to investing, it's feel rather than rocket science. I don't know if, if that's some, somewhere. It is possible I said that. I keep on liking to say I was a rocket scientist. I was a mechanical and aerospace engineer undergrad. So Nice. Yeah. I mean, I look, I feel like investing, early stage investing, especially, you're not going to have all the answers, right? I mean, we're not, as you know, a company can pivot and change so many times and have to deal with so many bumps in the road we're taking our best guess at this point in time, right? It's a point in time and, and kind of a, a guess on, on the company. Um, we do a, as much analysis as we can, especially depending on the stage. The earlier you go, I mean, the less information you have, really you're banking on a team and you're banking on the quality of that team and how well they can they can persevere and, and adapt. And so kind of being able to judge people is part of the, something that's very important, I think, in, in our job. Do we always get it right? Absolutely not. I think that that's part of what we have to do is take a limited amount of information and make educated uh, decisions on it as much as possible. Yeah, well, I think, I mean, you, you guys have built a good portfolio. I think that 
speaks well for ability to do that. When you look at these, you know, early stage investments, I guess one question I would have is what percentage of the early stage investments that you do have achieved product market fit versus not? I would say the vast majority of our deals have gotten product market fit to a certain extent. There is a, at least one of their products, which has kind of resonated with customers. Sometimes they're not paying for it yet, but it's gone out there. I think in some of our seed deals, there is, there is the possibility that we will do a deal early on and with much smaller percentage where we're just banking on a team, a market size, an opportunity, but they haven't really gotten the full product market fit. But you know, in a lot of cases also, we're banking on a future story as well. So there might be product market fit with one product, but the big potential is the additional layers of products that are going to be sold on top of that over time. And those haven't been proven yet, right? So, so there may be core product market fit, but there is a, the, the big bulk of presumed upside is, has not been proven yet. So there's, there's a combination of those. Yeah, I think when we market size, like, you know, you look at where your current business is and then what the expansion opportunities are there. And, and oftentimes those early stage companies, they've proven something, they've proven they can generate value for a certain type of customer. But the best businesses, you know, they start off with something and then they, they expand, right? They increase their, you know, their kind of their overall uh, TAM by whether it's tangential opportunities or expanding a, a current offering. So well, you look know, at some of the biggest companies out there, right? Look at Amazon. Amazon was selling books, right? Yeah, right? I mean, that, that, I mean like, like, and look where they are now. And so, I mean, again, you, you have to think about, and I'm not saying every company is going to be Amazon or, or we're going to invest in the next Amazon, but I think, again, you're trying to bet on people who can kind of take that idea, take it in one direction, and then expand in other ways as quickly as possible. And so is there a set criteria for when you evaluate your investments? I mean, when we look at, look, we have, we, for each investment, we have a deal memo that's fairly lengthy um, and has a number of different sections around that, that each, you know, we have to analyze in each one. So it's, it's looking at the team, understanding who the team is, what their, what their skill sets are, uh, any kind of areas that they need help with and so on. It is the business model. It's the product. It's the com- competition. It's the size of market, kind of a return profile that we do to kind of analyze what kind of return do we think we can get on this investment. And it's also where we can add value. So we believe that we won't do a deal unless we can add a certain amount of value to the company. So there's a section in there looking at what kind of value can we add to the company to make it be more successful and help it be more successful. So those are some of the big categories. I mean, I don't think, again, not rocket science. I mean, I think a lot of people will tell you those are the kind of things to look for, but that's kind of, we do have a kind of a checklist that we look through. What are those areas where you look at and be like, oh, we can add value to this? Like, what does that typically look like for Valor? It, so it depends on what the company needs. So in some cases, they need introductions for, say, business development deals or uh, regulatory. So, for example, you know, we're investors in Coinbase, which was one of our cross-borders where we brought them. They were looking to expand to Brazil at the time, and they needed introductions to the central bank. So we could do that for them, right? So they couldn't, on their own, they wouldn't get those introductions. They wouldn't get, so that's what we could do for them. In another case, for example, uh, this, this deal from Nigeria that we brought into Brazil, they wanted to talk to the, to the mobile carriers. So we've been in discussions with the mobile, we've introduced them to mobile carriers and sat there with them, kind of almost doing business development for them with two largest mobile carriers in Brazil, right? So those are the discussions that we can have and help them with. Sometimes it's, they need help with hiring and we, through our network, we can help them uh, hire people. So it really varies and, and depends on what they need. That's what we try to work out with the company from the beginning. So there's another company that we're looking at investing right now. And one of the big deals that they need is from another one of our portfolio companies. So we brokered a deal between one of our portfolio companies and them to actually, uh, which will actually, will be a step function for their business actually. So those are the kinds of things that we can come in and help them with. Well, that's great. I mean, it makes sense to, if you're going to put some capital in and you want to, if you can figure out how you can increase the value beyond just the money, 
that's where you're you're able to. I mean, every investor is looking to communicate their value prop, right? I mean, exactly. at the end of the day, you know, whether it's from you or from someone else, if the founders set on raising money and it's an interesting opportunity, you've got to kind of sell yourself, right? I think a lot of founders don't realize that sometimes. I, I absolutely agree. Look, I, I think one of the things that I firmly believe in, and I'm not sure that uh, the founders take this seriously, is that, again, this is a two-way street. A lot of founders, I feel like, think it's, I have to get investors and I have to take any investor, et cetera. I think it should be a two-way street where the investors, where the founders should feel good about the investors they're bringing in and the investors should be good about the founders that they're working with. It's like a marriage in some ways in that because you're going to be with these people for years and hopefully, right, if the company does well. And you want to be able to partner with them and, and it should be a real partnership. And so you should be able to go to your investors and ask them for help on whatever you need and feel comfortable asking them and feel that they will come and help you. Uh, and I think that that's really critical. And I'm not, I'm not sure enough entrepreneurs do their due diligence in that way on on investors. And more and more so, I think there's more money out there for founders, especially if you've got a good idea. And you should be picky about who you work with. And I think that's really critical. So there are probably deals that are probably not right for us because of the model or the founders or what have you. And there are probably deals that are not the founder. We're not right for the founders for whatever reason, or there may be a better option for the founders. But I think it's important to have that understanding from the from the beginning because I think. Um, you know, you want to work with the right people. Uh, and that's critical. Like, just like you're going to, when you're hiring people uh, for your company, you want to hire the right people for your culture and your and for the role. Same thing with your investors in some ways. It definitely, uh, I read this somewhere. I'm going to probably botch this quote, but it was somewhere I read somewhere, I think it was the average marriage or something. I don't remember where it was, you know, geographically last uh, eight, 8.2 years and the average holding time of investment is eight years. So it is kind of like a marriage. <laughs> exactly. 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 And you hear, I mean, you hear stories from both sides about bad situations, right? On, from investors and from founders. And, and sometimes, you know, you'll hear founders say, look, I wish I'd done more due diligence on my investors and wish I'd known this about them beforehand. I don't think any investor does everything perfectly. I think investors should and can add a lot of value to a company, but you need to know what you're getting into with, with the investors you're working with. Yeah, given you have this U.S. look at things and you're based in the U.S. and you've got people on the ground in Brazil, how do you see just like, is there some trend spotting that happens? And, you know, over the years, you saw a lot of copycat businesses in Brazil. I mean, looking yep. at Vivaral, I mean, we, we got inspiration from Zillow and, and Trulia and REA Group in Australia. How much is tropicalization necessary from your perspective? It's interesting. You know, I think tropicalization was more important earlier on. So we've been doing this about eight years now, right? So we started in, in, in uh, 2012, late 2011, early 2012, excuse me. I think at that time, there was a lot more of copycat, like the Groupon clones and things like that. And you had you had a lot of uh, copying. I almost look at it as in phases. I think in Brazil, you had phases of different kinds of evolution of the market. So I think in early phase, you had a lot of either e-commerce or tropicalization of, of other models, right? And that, and that started kind of the, the, the trend in general, which it was fine. I mean, you had you had your walls and stuff like that as well, which were kind of your, your portals and so on. But you had very early kind of phase. Then I think what you had in a lot of cases was a second phase, which was a lot of taking uh, processes in, that were very inefficient and putting technology behind them. So business process innovation, basically. So taking, we have a company called Cargo X, which essentially was, you know, matching cargo with truckers, right? At a very simple level. There's a lot more that they're doing now and so on. But, and, and that used to happen where uh, 60% of trucks would go back empty. After they drop off their cargo, they go back home empty. And a lot of those people would spend three days looking in truck stops for little pieces of paper on the window. 
Now you've got mobile phones. Mobile phones, the mobile phone and smartphone penetration happen, and now you can do that all through an app and much more efficiently, right? So, but essentially, that there was a whole phase of companies that were doing something like that in Brazil, and now I think we're getting to a third phase, which is almost like technology innovation, um, which is I think going to be much more interesting. I think there's less pure tropicalization and more kind of taking pieces of what really works and applying it to the Brazilian context and saying, yeah, Brazil's a little bit different in these areas. But I'm going to pick and choose some certain things that seem to have worked that make sense for Brazil, and I'm going to create my own thing. And I think that's a little bit of a spin on tropicalization. But I mean, if, if you look at, you know, our, the Brazilian market's massive in a lot of cases. You look at education, right? You have a huge education market. You have a huge um, beauty market. You have the reason the gym pass could start in, in Brazil before class pass started in the U.S. is you've got the second largest gym market in the world is in Brazil. Um, you know, so they do indoor geolocation. So it's almost like think about ways as external. This is this is almost internally focused, where you can almost map in interior locations and so on. In the U.S., everyone was doing it through beacons, right? So they put hardware in the ceiling and, and do it through beacons. Well, in a market like Brazil, that's way too expensive. It doesn't make sense. So they jumped that and then started utilizing just what was in your mobile phone, which was you know your your gyroscope, your ma- uh, magnetometer, etc. And each building has its own kind of magnetic fingerprint, and they could start doing that with just the, the information on your phone. So there is some leapfrogging of technology just by necessity that ha- can happen in a, in a market like Brazil, which is really interesting as well. Yeah, no shout outs, Andre Fahaz from Inloco, and you know you mentioned Jim Pass, uh, you know Cesar. Is done an amazing job there, and and uh, Cargo X is another you know you know global company now. Uh, Frederico has done an incredible job with that business. So, I think oftentimes you start off with some inspiration. You do make those kind of you can call it tropicalization or adaptation. And I like to see the how things kind of just leapfrog. Sometimes we saw this with mobile things going directly to mobile because mobile is growing so fast in emerging exactly. markets in Southeast Asia, and and so I think that's exciting. It's even interesting because sometimes the structural there are structural differences. So, like for example, in the U.S., um, so we are, one of our companies, Olist, could only start in a place like Brazil. It couldn't start in the U.S. because what they do is they basically connect small and medium merchants and put them in marketplaces all over, right? And so, but in the U.S., you already had a massive play with Amazon, right? So you couldn't see that layer existing. And so when we you talk to U.S. investors for a long time, they're like, "Well, why does this exist? Why do we even need that layer between the merchants and the marketplaces?" And you're like, "Because." The marketplaces are so fragmented, are much more fragmented in, in Brazil and most markets. And that layer actually adds a lot of value to the marketplaces because they aggregate a lot of supply to put into the marketplaces. The marketplaces don't have to deal with each individual uh, merchant. And for each individual merchant to try to go to all those marketplaces is very different, difficult because their APIs change. They're not sophisticated enough to do that. And so you need that extra layer. And what it's proven to be is very valuable because they can help not only put the merchants into these different marketplaces, but also add logistics, add financial services, and so on that these small and medium businesses wouldn't get on their own naturally. So again, some of these things are just coming come out of a market like Brazil because the, you know, the structural aspects are so different than a market like the U.S., and, but they're very needed business models. And I think that's a perfect example of the benefit of, I'd say, Series A investors that have a local operation. Yep. If you're a top-tier VC from the Valley, it's just a lot of effort to try to understand those, you know, those very specific nuances of a, of a local market in right. call it Mexico or Brazil or Colombia or wherever. And so I think that that's why a lot of the top-tier investors they look for a signal from a local investor, right? That's a common trend. You know, you've got a couple, you know, I think Andreessen has done some bigger deals like earlier on, but it's very rare. 
most of the VCs from the Valley prefer to wait and see what local investors kind of sponsor a deal because they have unique understanding of the of the pain and the local market demands. I think you're seeing some of them now starting to be more open to being educated about what some of the companies. Um, I think before it was, look, that's in Brazil. It's too far away. I'm not going to, I don't understand that market. I got a lot to do here, which obviously there's, there's still a lot here, but I think there's more openness to saying, okay, Brazil is really on the map and there's some really interesting companies that are growing there. And I need to start educating myself a little bit more and, and learning more about those companies. And I think that's, you know, it's more reassuring in some ways, you know, it may be also, I, I don't know if it's going to be, but, you know, as the U.S.-China conflict can, continues to heat up, it's going to be, I think, harder and harder for investors here unless they've got a local team specifically in China to invest in China. And, you know, exits may be impacted at some point. So they're going to have to look at other places. And you've got India, but you've also got Brazil, which has been kind of flown under the radar for a while now. And I think you may see some more interest in Brazil over time. Kind of a last topic here. You mentioned exits. That's one of the challenging things for Latin America in general, right? There just hasn't been as many exits as you know. We I think everyone would have liked. Where are we at the, in the cycle? Of course, nobody knows exactly. But what kind of activity are you seeing, and how do you see that evolving? Had a lot more money going to India, for example. I think yep. the numbers are like twice as much money going into India as as Latin America, and so the gap with Brazil is even bigger. What are your thoughts on M&A and what's the future hold for early stage startups getting big and being acquired or going public? Yeah. So, I mean, we talk about this a lot. I mean, I think we're seeing more activity happening now. So we have had one of our companies went public, Stone, went public in the NASDAQ. Um, We've seen a lot more Brazilian companies going public in the U.S. recently. So three or four education companies went public in the U.S. And we've seen some more M&A, but on the generally smaller side, sub $100 million sort of. M&A. I think there's a question around what are the exits going to be kind of in that call it two to $500 million range, right? Where do you really have acquirers who are, who are going to be big enough to acquire those yet? I think we've still got to wait and see how that plays itself out. I would think that over time, it will be a good market for foreign acquirers to come in. Uh, I know there have been a number of Chinese companies that have looked at the Brazilian market and, and, and seen, and I think that very opportunistically smart about looking at new markets and things like that. I could also see some U.S. companies thinking about it as an expansion uh, method as well. I mean, again, you know, if companies are thinking strategically about it, they should look at Brazil from the perspective of you can probably get, there's probably an arbitrage in multiples, right? So you can get into it, you can buy a company in Brazil and have at a lower multiple to add revenue to your top line and then or your to your bottom line and get a higher multiple in the US, right? So I think that there is some ability to do some arbitrage, which makes a lot of sense once companies are really, you know, are, are over the hurdle of saying, okay, I should think about working at Brazil. Um, but I think we're still we've seen exits on both kind of the top end and the bottom end of the spectrum as far as valuations. Now I think it's that middle piece that we need to kind of flesh out. Uh, but I think it's happening. I think we always said that the exits were going to come. I think we're getting to that point where we're seeing more and more of them. Yeah, I think that it helps to look at a company like Mercado Libre topping the list of most valuable companies in Latin America. More than Petrobras. And yeah. Bali, yeah. And when an international investor starts looking at most valuable companies in the world and they see Mercado Libre up, up there on the list, company that started out in Argentina, uh, all of a sudden Latin America maybe isn't feel so niche or small because really there's just a lot of value and it's just early in its cycle. Thank you for kind of sharing your perspective. It's fun to get to know more Valor. We've had some some good conversations. I think first time we really connected was back in San Francisco. We had dinner 
Kevin Hart's from Eventbrite's house when the Brazil group came together. Okay. And uh, since then, it's been great to follow. Definitely Valor. Investing that I've done has come up a lot more in conversations over the last four or five years um, than I remember back when I was starting out. And so it's great to see the success that you've had and the, you know, some of the great portfolio companies that you've built. Uh, so it's a pleasure to connect with you and looking forward to continuing to build the future of tech in the region. And so thanks a lot for taking the time to, to share your thoughts with us. No, absolutely. Thanks so much. And uh, looking forward to doing more with you, Brian. And, uh, and hopefully uh, any new future flights will not involve cancellations so, uh, so we can have a smooth trip whenever we can travel again. We'll coordinate together uh, next time when, when things smooth out, as you said, uh, we'll, we'll coordinate and we'll, we'll jump on a flight together. And uh, you know, hopefully I won't be kicked, kicked back to, 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 to coast this time. <laughs> All right. All right, man. Thank, thank you for, for, your, for your time. Thank you. Take care, Brian. Right. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Antoine Colasso, partner at Valor Capital Group. Each week, we'll be talking to great founders and investors like him. So be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and check out latitude.com to find out more about the Latitude Fellowship Program. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Until next time.